Public Radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, we'll hear about my visit to the Catskills Delaware River Valley homestead, Smoky Bells, where community member Annie Stanley hosted folks with a variety of chili stews and her annual maple tree tapping activity. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. A powerful storm system that's regged the continental U.S. is setting upon the northeast today, though weakened it's bringing wind, rain, and snow. NPR's Amy Held reports its snowfall is still debilitating the west, and to the south, storms and tornadoes killed at least nine people. Strong winds and tornadoes toppled tractor trailers and trees from Texas to Kentucky, causing hundreds of thousands of power outages as far north as Michigan. And in California, people are still trapped from as much as 10 feet of snow. In the San Bernardino Mountains east of L.A., Stephen Holyfield is holed up with his family. The last information we were told is that it could be seven to ten days before somebody plazes out. These people up here, we don't have supplies the last seven to 10 days, and we certainly don't have propane. So we're going to be in dire situations. National Guard troops are working to reach people clearing roadways and shoveling walkways. Meantime, another West Coast storm system could bring several feet of fresh snow farther north in the Sierra Nevada and Cascade Ranges. Amy Held, NPR News. Police in San Jose, California, say a man arrested for possessing large amounts of explosives may have blown up electric transformers in December and January, causing power outages for hundreds of homes and business. Police spokesman Steve Aponte says it appears the suspect acted alone. We know that we're going forward with our FBI partners to have a broader scope of this type of investigation. Um, But as of right now, we believe that this is the only individual associated to these incidents, and these are the only incidents that we know of. The suspect is identified as a 36-year-old software engineer. He faces nine felony charges, including arson and possession of bomb-making materials. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency is in Tehran after new alarms were raised over Iran's nuclear program. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports Rafael Grossi says expectations for progress are high. Grossi told reporters in Tehran that discussions with Mohammed Aslami, the head of Iran's atomic energy organization, involved an investigation into traces of uranium found at three undeclared sites in Iran. The agency reportedly wants an explanation for uranium particles that had been enriched to nearly 84% purity, very close to weapons grade. Grossi described his meetings as being marked by, quote, work, honesty, and cooperation. Islami told Iranian state TV that Tehran moved away from its commitments under the 2015 nuclear agreement after, quote, other parties failed to fulfill their commitments. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Attorney General Merrick Garland is promising the U.S. will hold Russia responsible for war crimes in Ukraine. He spoke at a war crimes conference during an unannounced visit to Ukraine yesterday. 
He said the Ukrainians are fighting not only for Ukraine, but for all democracies and people who love freedom. This is NPR News. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farming Country. Coming up on today's show, we'll hear about my visit to the Delaware Valley, Catskill Mountain Homestead, Smoky Bells. Smoky Bells is an artist homestead in secluded woodlands outside of Narrowsburg, New York, in the Catskills, Delaware River Valley. Community member Annie Stanley lives there. At this time of the year, Annie taps her trees for maple syrup. Aware that our winter weather has been inconsistent with temperature swings, I planned a visit with her to see how the sap was flowing in late February. She was sharing the warmth of winter outdoors around a fire with friends who offered a variety of crock-pot chili stews. And she took the time to share her method of tapping her maple trees for sap. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. Stanley and we're at the Smoky Bells Catskills Artist Homestead. We've been hosting artists here since 2007. We're on the cabin property down the road from the main house and this is our annual maple tapping event. We teach people about maple tapping homesteading to make maple syrup on your own properties and the simplicity of the equipment that's required and how to identify trees. We have about 25 people here today, a bonfire, and the second annual chili cook-off contest with judges. There's about seven chilies out there that are being judged that everyone in the community made. And there are, it's an array of second homeowners, locals, and people vacationing here that have stopped by. We're in the writer shack, which is the writer shack of Smoky Bells, where often writers come in here to have seclusion and write poetry or whatever. We've got the wood stove burning, and we're at the stove here. There's a pot of boiling sap on the stove. There's also a blue kettle enamel pot of pine needle lemon orange hot water to add up to Catskill Provision maple bourbon which was donated by the Catskills Provisions. And here we have three jars of different maple syrup varieties that were done at different times in the season, different boiling temperatures. You can see there's a really light one that tastes like butterscotch. There's one that tastes like maple syrup. And there's one that tastes like almost on the verge of molasses. I thought the color had to do with the, the beginning of the season and the tail end, but the maple syrup season is very brief. 
especially now with climate change, the color is less about when you do it. It is more about the longevity of the boil. So I'd like to research that more. From what I've read, that's what they say. It's more about the boiling and the longevity of the boil that makes it darker. But I have three different tastings here for people that are, it's literally like one is butter, one is butterscotch, one is molasses. Well, tell me about this year. It's 2023 and the weather is so erratic. Yeah. Are the trees behaving on time and on schedule? Well, it's usually this time of year because we do usually have this event during winter break when people are out of, you know, up here on vacation from school break. The sap was running, pouring out of the trees. I got 30 gallons and then all of a sudden abruptly stopped. And it was because it got too cold at night. The taps all froze up. There was literally ice coming out of the taps and in the buckets. There's still ice in the buckets today. But unfortunately, there's no snow on the ground, so it's really hard to go around and collect all the buckets because I usually bring my sled. So now I'm carrying out five-gallon buckets with a, a stick with my shoulders holding the buckets and hauling them over to my evaporator. I'm not doing a big production here, but it's still a lot of work, and it's a 10-to-1 ratio, so 10 gallons for... A quart. Ten gallons of tree sap. For one quart, yeah, about a quart of whatever you get in the, the market, you know, that bottle, just think it takes t- ten gallons of sap water. So a lot of people think that maple syrup just comes out of the tree as is. But it comes out of the tree. Basically, it's a lightly sweetened sugar water that is feeding the saplings, the buds at the top of the tree. And so the tree has been storing all the starch and the roots and everything in the bottom. And when when the sun comes out, warmer days and later winter, it shoots up the sap to feed the buds at the top of the tree. And that, it's crystal clear water, but very minerally and earthy and crisp it's it's hard to describe. You just have to taste it yourself. But yeah, let's venture outside. Let's go see how if the guests are impressed with the chili. You have a you have a yard full of guests out here. Hello, ladies. I'd like to hear about your chili. Just introduce yourself and tell me what what you're thinking about whatever chili. My name is Jane, and I live down the lane. Ask me again, and I'll tell you the same. But anyway, Jane, <laughs> the chilies are absolutely delicious, and they all taste a little bit different than the first and second and third one. They're really very good. My name is Christine. This is my second year at the annual chili cook-off here at Smoky Bells. And, yeah, I think the chili's actually better this year. My name is Mary, and like Christine, this is my second year coming to the Chili Cook-Off as a contestant. We were both contestants last year. We were both winners last year. And we were both winners last year. Well, tell me about the chili that you brought. Describe it. So I bought a chicken verde chili 
new recipe I tried in my brand new Instant Pot. I've been hearing positive reviews, so I hope it's good and balanced like I wanted it to be, but as much as I like winning, this is like the win is just being here, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It's a beautiful atmosphere here. The, we're in the woods. We're just outside of Narrowsburg, but we're in the woods. It's moss-covered, not snow-covered, because that's the kind of winter we're having, but it, there's a fire going, and you can't beat it. We didn't bring chili. But you're, you're eating it. Would you like to tell me your name? <laughs> Wayne Miller. Hi, Wayne. Tell me about the chili you ate. Do you like it? Well, I had two kinds. This one is super spicy. It's excellent. Um, I also had the one that was just, I think, avocado and chicken. Delicious. I'm on my fourth chili so far. <laughs> and your name is? I'm Brendan. I'm one of the judges. Oh. Tell me the qualities you're going to use for judging. Savory. Also the combination of the, um, the ingredients. I want to be able to taste everything. And... Some of the chilies I've tasted so far, yeah, I've been very successful at that. Well, you sound like you either cook or you like to eat. You have some good qualifications. Hi, I'm Diego, and my experience eating the chili was awesome. I don't know who made that green chili with the... I, I approve of that message. It's very intriguing drink in this very large bottle. So let's talk about that. What are the ingredients in there? Well, technically, I didn't make it. Justin and, the, and Justin made it. I taught him last year. But it's a hibiscus. It's hibiscus flowers, dried hibiscus flowers, and then you brew it like a tea, and then you mix it with, like, uh, you smash ginger, and you let it steep. Then it gets really thick like wine. Then you add rum into it. Ah, it's a traditional uh, Caribbean Christmas drink that you drink at Christmas. Sorrel was the little flowers. It's actually hibiscus flowers. Thank you. <laughs> Some of the chilies have maple syrup in them. There's different categories. There's vegetarian. There's there's actually a vegan chili, and there's a chicken chili, and. A meat chili, a really traditional Texas chili. Okay, is there a spokesperson for this judging group? The winner was unanimous. Was unanimous. Yeah. It was unanimous. There was very little conversation about who the clear winner was, and then there was some uh, conversation about uh, honorable mention and uh, place and show. But uh, Jane, why don't you tell us who won? Um, The Red Pot Christine. Delicious. There was no argument about it. And no. Best we came up with it right flavors, away. Best balance. It was, we all agreed. Right away. That was the best turn one. So, so tasty. nice job. An honorable mention on the cornbread, too. And, okay, and in second place, chickpea chili. Yeah! Honey, <laughs> what? Yeah. Everybody, everybody really liked right. that. Very popular with the judges. And in third place, the green chicken. Annie's invited guests enjoyed the assortment of chili, an impressive campfire, and walking among maple trees as sap drips into the bucket. I return the next day to the Smoky Bells homestead 
to check the sap buckets with Annie. Describe what you're doing right now. Okay. Well, this bucket filled up since yesterday. Well, all those guests were here. It's got some ice in it because it got cold last night. That's a good thing. Keeps the sap cold, actually. Until you can uh, collect it. I'm just filtering off. You know, sometimes there's a little bit of a some debris, a pine needle, or a piece of bark, or, or a little bug. <laughs> See the ice here? I'm gonna, I'm not gonna put the ice in the bucket because that is pure water. Um, the water actually separated from the sap. So you don't want to put that in your boiling pot. But since it's so warm, I might leave the ice in the bucket so that the future dripping sap can stay cold. That's a pretty good drip. This bucket might be full by the end of the day. These buckets are going to be heavy later. So the problem is now with this, these fluctuating temperatures that uh, it's so even more unpredictable, the sap season. And I was, you know, reading into it a little bit more. Not only does the sap season depend on the temperatures and the sun and the rising temperatures in the late winter and the longer days but in the fall is when the temperatures drop in the fall uh, below 40 that's when the tree starts to produce the starch that will later become the food for the sap run and because our our falls have been so odd as well we've had extended summers Winter comes later, we barely have spring, and then the summer is lasting into November. The sap run would be a couple weeks in the late winter consistently, but now the sap starts running, and then it freezes up, and then we get a snowstorm, and then it gets, you know, 55 degrees the next day. This is having a, a big impact on my schedule <laughs> well you have a good sense of humor about it but what do you think is causing it we have the answer it's it's climate change and um it's impacting everything i saw robins on christmas day a whole bush full of robins and i don't think the robins flew south this year because I saw them uh, recently as well. I think they're confused. It's mid-February and I saw and heard the red-winged blackbird along the river and it's at least four to six weeks before I usually hear that. Yeah, I heard the, I heard the blackbird the other day here too. 
I think it's all from climate change. Overdevelopment, industrialization, development, and the animals constantly having to shift their territories, getting displaced. Do we have another bucket on the other side of this tree? This is the, is this the red maple tree that we were tapping? So, yeah, this one, you can see, it does have the shaggy bark on the bottom, but it's less brown shaggy than uh, the sugar maple. And then as you look up, you see how it kind of gets smooth and patchy? Mm -hmm. So that's an indication that it's uh, a red maple. And then if you look up even further to the top of the tree and the branches, you can see that symmetrical branching. It pairs off symmetrically yeah. from the main branch. It's called opposite branching. Mm -hmm. And this is just one of several maple species. Um, and you can tap them all. Ash trees don't produce sap. Maples and black birch you can also tap the black birch trees after it comes later than the maple. So usually when I finish collecting the sap from the maple trees, I'll tap a couple birch trees. And that is a really peculiar flavor. Uh, that's what they used to make root beer with. We'll find a, a black birch tree and I'll scrape the bark for you and you can smell it's like a wintergreen root beer, sassafras kind of smell. It's, it's beautiful. This is a piece of the black birch, which I'll, I'll break into the salad. Oh. Mm, oh. oh my gosh. Oh, I'd love to have soap. Look at the color of it. There is yeah. a, um, you know, that Meyer soap. They make a black, yeah. black birch soap. Ooh. But I, I tap the trees actually. There's an array of old taps ranging from the 1800s. These are those old wooden ones. We're in this little cabin over here with lots of interesting artifacts. Annie pointed out she has a collection of the spiles, which are the, the little hardware that you use to tap the tree, the spouts where the sap trickles out. Of. Some of those are from the 1800s, and some of them are probably cast lead. Um, then they started making them with aluminum. Nowadays you can get stainless steel. But these earlier ones, who knows when, maybe from even later, early 1800s, these are wooden, hand-carved, and I don't know how they did that, made the hole through there, but somebody was very busy carving these taps in the winter to prepare for the season. And this is the, you know, like what the drill they would have used to make a hole in the tree Ooh. by hand. <laughs> yeah. All the equipment I use is, is old. I prefer the historical um, aesthetic of it. <laughs> Do you think they function as well as, as contemporary equipment? 
Well, a lot of people have transitioned to using plastic. You know, those are most of the farms that are doing more of a mass production and not just homesteading. Um, there you'll see, you know, when you're driving around the county, these uh, plastic tubes running through the woods, and then they end up going to a bigger vat than that feeds, is vacuum-fed to... Uh, a big evaporator and a sap house. A lot of people, you know, ask, where does the sap come from and how does the tree produce it? And I have here, this is uh, some literature from the University of Maine. Uh, basically, understanding how maple sap is formed requires some knowledge about the, the tree physiology um in the late summer and fall maple trees virtually stop growing and begin storing excess starches throughout the sapwood especially in the cells uh, of the tree the excess starch remains in storage as long as the wood remains colder than 40 degrees whenever wood temperatures reach around 40 degrees fahrenheit the enzymes in the race cells change the starches to sugars, and this sugar then passes into the tree sap. As the temperature rises to about 45 degrees, the enzyme stops functioning and the sugar no longer is produced. In March and April, the sugar changes back to the starch, except during periods of the sap flow. Rising temperatures create the pressure inside the trees, causing the sap to flow up and down the tree. When a hole is bored into the tree, just, you know, about an inch and a half past that layer of bark, that's where the sap is flowing. And so you're basically tapping into that vein of the tree with the, where the sap is flowing behind the bark. And that's the moment we have. <laughs> if people want to tap trees and do homesteading on their property, they should take a walk in the woods in the fall before the leaves drop and take note of the trees and their locations or mark them uh, with some ribbon, because then you can really tell by looking up and seeing the leaves. You know, the maple, sugar maple has five lobes on its leaf, which is the pointy part, and the red maple has usually three. And you, you know, we all know what a maple leaf looks like pretty much, so I, I highly suggest getting to know the trees on your property and scouting out the maples in the fall. Your life will be much easier. I asked Annie what inspires her to do this work. It's good exercise for me in the winter, and I really enjoy being in the woods, and that's a good excuse to take a walk in the woods. So it's a winter activity for me, and it, it really does shift my mood when the sap season is coming. <laughs> it sweetens your mood. <laughs> yeah, it sweetens my mood. 
And the buckets are heavier, but I feel lighter. There you go. Well, Annie, thanks for taking the time to speak with us, sharing all the information that you have. You're very talented and a gift to our community. Thank you. Annie shared with me a bit of history. The American Indians taught the early colonial settlers about tapping trees and using sap syrup for sweeteners and medicinal purposes. Annie says Smokey Bell's homestead information is available on Instagram. This is Rosie Starr. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week, produced by a Radio Catskill volunteer. Special thanks goes to our guests, Annie Stanley and visiting community members from Smokey Bell's homestead in the Catskill Woodlands and Delaware River Valley. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farming Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farming Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions providing tools for action and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This week on Notes from America, how can we read history from a totally new perspective? So we think about these representative figures, these notable figures. So how does one write an account of a nameless figure? I'm Kai Wright. Join me for a conversation with cultural historian Saidia Hartman. Sunday evening at 6, live on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Catskill. There are two warming